tell me. This is according to USA.gov. What are the top ten for 2010? Lose weights, number one. What? Stop smoking, that's number eight. Number two, get in shape. Less stress is number nine. Get rid of debt, number three. Eat better, we'll put that into lose weight. Nope. <laughs> Go to church? Nope. Not on the government website. Nothing about church. Anything else? Huh? Nope. Exercise, we've got that one. Get in shape. Huh? Save more money. I'll give you that one. That's number four. No. No. Stop drinking. That's number seven. <laughs> That's a personal resolution. You can keep that to yourself. Nope. I got four more. Going once. Nope. Take a class. Get an education. That's better. Get a better job. Oh, you only have one more. Take a trip. Take a trip. That's number 10. So people who research this, 50% of the folks who make those resolutions will have quit by the end of January, 90%, 9 out of 10, will have bailed by the end of March. So within 90 days, 9 out of the 10 people who made those resolutions will have already broken them. And that's why the list for 2010 looks just like the list from 2009 and just like the list from 2008, and it's going to look just like the list for 2011. We keep resolving to do the same things over and over again because we can't do it. All of these, they're wonderful, and maybe those are your resolutions, maybe that's what you shared, maybe you have, a, maybe, uh, whatever. I don't care about any of that other than to say this. All of these resolutions are external behaviors, and that's what we focus on. And so we try to change external behaviors, behavior modification, and we stink at it, all of us. We all stink at it. And as long as that's what we try to do, we're going to continue to have the same resolutions every month, every three months, every six months, every year. We're not wired to be able to change our behavior from the outside in. If you were here last week, Penny talked about real change, true change, lasting change, always begins with a changed heart. Proverbs 4, we live out of our heart. It's the wellspring of life. What's in there comes out of there. And until that changes, this other stuff, all you've got is how hard you can try. And some of us can try hard for a week, and some of us can try hard for a month, and some of us can try hard for a quarter, some of us can try hard for a year. But eventually, you're going to run out of steam. You can only live against your heart for so long. Because out of your heart comes your life. You can only run counter to that for so long. You say, I say, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to eat better. But if the reason I overeat is for comfort, until God does something in my heart, I'm going to continue to overeat. I want to manage my debt. I want to spend less. But if the reason I run up my credit cards is for status or self-esteem, until God deals with my heart, I'm going to continue to do that. My will is not that strong, and neither is yours. That's why all the self-help stuff doesn't work. The self-help stuff assumes that we're okay. We just need some tweaking. The Bible says we're wicked. The problem is ourself. We need a new one, not a better version of the old one. Jeremiah 17.3, your heart is, it says, desperately sick, beyond cure, deceitful above everything else. That's the problem. 
I don't need to tweak my heart. I need a new heart because mine's deceitful above all else and it's, it's desperately sick. The NIV says beyond all cure. Thankfully, in Ezekiel 36, God says he'll give me a new one. I'll give you a new heart. I'll take away your stone heart, your hard heart that resists the Lord. I'll give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart that'll yield to him. And, that's, and thankfully, Jesus made all of that possible. The issue with all of us when it comes to resolutions or commitments or whatever you want to call them is we can't keep them because we can't keep them until something changes in our hearts. Many of you have been Christians for years, but you still live out of an old place. You have a new, you're a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians 5. You're a new creation. But there's a part of you that continues to revert back to your old self, maybe just in one or two areas of life. And when you try to fix those, it's all about how much better you're going to do, how hard you're going to work, how much you're going to try, how it's going to be different this time. You're setting yourself up for failure. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. If we continue to try to do things in the same way and expect that it's going to be different just because it's 2010 or just because it's a different exercise tape or just because it's a different financial program or whatever it is, it's just silly. It's insanity. We need to do things different if we want different results. And the different is to begin by allowing the Lord to change our hearts. We got four kids, 10, 8, 4 and a half, and baby. And we were at, um, we were eating on Friday night, so we were talking about resolutions. And our four and a half year old, he doesn't know resolutions. So he said, he made New Year's revolutions, is what he was making. And this is corny, but it fits. A revolution is a change, a resolution is a commitment. You can't make the commitment until you first have the change. Your heart has to change, and that heart change will enable you to keep these commitments that you're making to be a better person in whatever area of life that it is that you want to be a better person. But until you have the revolution in your heart, until your heart changes, you're really setting yourself up for failure. It's a matter of time. I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow, and I guarantee you I'm not going to be able to find a treadmill. It's going to be full of people with their new, new iPods and new running shoes, and they're going to get a year's worth of exercise in about in a day. They're going to try to get it all in in one day. And in three weeks, I'll be able to find whatever treadmill I want. That's it's how it is. It's, we're, we're, we're not cut out. To do, that's not how God made us. You're living against your nature to try to change yourself from the outside in. Begins with the heart because that's the wellspring of life. And once your heart is right, you still have to do the things that you have to do. Stuff to exercise some self-control and some dis all of those things. But you won't be fighting against your nature anymore. You'll be working with it. This morning I want to look at some things that we can do. The question really is our, about our heart. And so the question is, well, how do I change my heart? And again, the answer to that is you can't. It's not, you can't. God can. And what we want to do is ask him to do that and to create some opportunities that allow him to work in our hearts. We want to give him some space to do the work that needs to happen in our hearts, which will then enable us to change our behavior. So there are some things that we can do, some tangible, concrete actions. We do them in faith, that is believing God to work through them to change our hearts. So it's not that we just sit there and wait for God to zap us. We want to, there's some things that we can do, but we want to do them in faith, not just going through the motions saying, God, I'm doing this, believing you to change my heart. Just a small example, Jesus says, I think it's in Matthew 6, um, where your treasure is, your heart is. Six or seven, somewhere in there. 
So the idea is, you know, I, I give money to the Sierra Club, so my heart's there. And I decide I want my heart with the NRA. I'm tired of protecting animals. I want to kill them. So I'm going to move my, I want my heart to be here. So according to Jesus, I just need to, I need to redirect my giving. Stop writing checks to the Sierra Club and start writing checks to the NRA. But you can't just do that mechanically. I have to do that in faith. God, as I do this, in honor of Charlton Heston, please change my heart so that I start wanting to kill animals instead of wanting to, whatever that looks like. So there are things, biblically, there's precedent there for changing your actions and doing those actions in faith and trusting that God will change your heart. So I'm not at all advocating sitting in your recliner and saying, well, I'm just not going to do anything until God gives me a new heart. No. There's some things that we're going to talk about, but you want to do them in faith. It's not enough just to kind of carry out the formula. And we're going to look at David. In Acts 13 and in 1 Samuel 13, David is identified by God as a man after his own heart. That's why he was picked. God is looking for a king. He looks across the nation of Israel and he says, that guy is a man after my own heart, so I'm going to pick him to be the king. So if our hearts are what are important, and David had a heart after God, it seems like we might be able to learn something from him. So that's why I want to look at three quick things from David. The first one is this. We need to create more space. This is the most important thing you can do, and it's also the simplest. This is Everybody can do this starting today. You know, we need to create more space for God to get at us. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see many of them, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David. Some people dispute whether he wrote all of them, but there's no doubt that there's a, they call it a Psalter, a collection of these Psalms. That was, that was his. He had his own book of basically praise songs and prayers. And if you read through the Psalms and just look for the ones that say a Psalm of David and read those, you'll see there was a depth of relationship that he had with God. He griped, he complained, he was frustrated, he was joyful, he was expectant, everything. You see the whole range of emotions in the Psalms and situations. When he was victorious and he's sitting on the throne, when he's on the run from Saul, when he's been betrayed, when he's sick, all of these things you see. And this is just the formal collection that we have. We don't know all the things that he never wrote down or that no one recorded that he said. All we have is this formal collection, and it's rich. And it indicates this real this depth of relationship with the Lord. And that's something that we all need, and I don't know how else to get it other than time. I, I, I don't think there's a shortcut. Simplify is kind of a buzzword, and I, that's not what I'm talking about. For some of us, it's not doing less, it's doing more. You need to do more with God. You need to give him more space to work. I don't care if you call it a quiet time. I don't care if you call it personal devotions. I don't care if you call it your, I don't care what you call it. You just have to do it. And most likely you need to do it more than you were doing it. Just, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be three hours. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. But you've got to give him space. And my encouragement would be to give him more space than you're currently giving him to work in your life. And there are elements. And you can just, it's a recipe, but it doesn't matter. You can read the Bible, you can worship, you can pray, you can listen, you can journal, you can, any of that stuff. You can read devotional books, Most for His Highest, or Streams in the Desert. You can't read Chicken Soup for the Soul. That doesn't count at all. Don't read, read that somewhere else. Don't read that here. You can do any of those things. Some of them, all of them, trade. I, I, I don't care. It does, all that stuff, that's just a recipe. 
But what's important is to give him space to work, and whatever that looks like. And you say, well, I'm not that type of guy. That's the problem. You're not that type of guy. And you need to become that type of guy. Imagine if I come to you and say, you know, Misty's killing me. She, we're not connecting with each other, and she's on me all the time. And you say, well, y'all spend time together. And I say, no, I'm not that kind of guy. What are you going to say to me? I'm not the kind of guy. And that, but that's what we say. Well, I don't like to read. Well, listen to a CD. You can download the whole Bible. You don't have to read. Well, I don't understand the Bible. Then buy a different one. There's 87 translations. Find one. Some of them are written to kids. You can read a kid's Bible. You can put a cover on it. Nobody will know. Just <laughs> find something. Go buy a study Bible. They're 50 bucks. They're expensive, but you only have to buy one. It's got little notes. And when you don't understand something, you look down at the bottom, and there's a footnote that explains it. It's wonderful. Just no more excuses. You, you've got to create space somehow. Just, I'm not at all lifting myself up as an example of anything, just, to, just so you all know what, what I do. I used to get up at 6 in the morning, and it worked good. And I had from 6 to 7 or 7.15, and that was kind of my time with the Lord. And then as things got more complex last year, the church got bigger and more complex, and our family got bigger and more complex, and these things were happening, I realized, I didn't, and my kids started getting up earlier, I didn't have enough time. And that's not holy, I just, I didn't have enough time. For some of you, that's plenty of time, it wasn't for me. The kids started getting up earlier, and I have more stuff that I needed insight for. And I was realizing things about myself, and God needed more access to my heart. And so I wrestled around for a while, and then I started waking up at 5. And for some of you, that's early, and for some of you, that's late. And that's what I do. Six days a week, I wake up at 5. I sleep in on Saturdays. I don't, I don't do it on Saturdays. Six days a week, I wake up at 5, and I go sit on the couch in our den, and I pray, and I read the Bible, and I journal. Even though I'm a man, I still journal. <laughs> that's what I do. And sometimes I fall asleep at 5.45, and I don't feel guilty about that at all. And sometimes I stay awake from 5 until the kids get up at 7. And that's great. It's not about, for me, it's not about the time. It's, about the, it's not about the length of time. It's about creating the space. And sometimes, like I said, I fall asleep and that's fine. I don't beat myself up about that. And other times that I don't. There's some times where it's great and there are other times where I'm like, eh. But it doesn't matter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to eat dinner with my family every night. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's, eh. Not the food, the family time. She's a great cook. Sometimes it's the food. It's not the food, but, you know, it, it, but that doesn't matter. It's not going to be a home run every time. That, that's not the point. Creating space over time. I don't have to cram in everything every time. I don't have a list. Imagine I, go to, I come back and you say, man, you've got to spend more time with her. That's the problem. You've got to be that kind of guy. And so the next, night, next week I come to you and say, well, you said spend more time with her. So every night we, we start eating dinner together and we sat down and I just tell her what was happening. And I just, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, told her what was happening. And then I was done. I got up. It's not working. What are you going to say? You're an idiot. That we do that with God. Here, God, here's my list. All right. God bless. God working. And then we get up and we're done. And we wonder why it, we don't connect. Because all you've done is talk. It's a monologue. You know, you know that. Or I, I come to you the next week and say, well, okay, well, I quit talking. So I sat down at dinner and I just looked at Misty and waited. All right, I guess you got nothing to say. I'm going to leave. We do that to God. 
You sit in the chair. All right, God, show me something. All right, I guess you got nothing to say. Then we go. Come on. You know, we, you know how to do that. Don't do that. There's a rhythm. The elements are not important. The rhythm is key. Encounter. That's when God reveals himself to us. He shows us something, and all of you have experienced that. In the, you've read something in the Bible, and it's kind of jumped out. Oh, that's for me. You've, you've heard a, some, a line in a song, and you thought, man, that's it. I, didn't, I never realized that about God before. Where he kind of pulls the veil back or pulls the curtain back, and he lets us see him. That's his part of the dance. And ours is engagement. That's when we give him something of ourselves. Our focus, our attention, our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving, our frustration, our confusion, whatever it is. Encounter and engagement. His job is to pull the curtain back and let us see him. Our job is to give him something from ourselves. We try to do that here on Sunday mornings. That's not enough. You've got to do it during the week as well. You've got to figure out how. Find a way. If you're a music guy, then do that. If you're a whatever it takes for you to get into a place where God has access to you, where you're giving him something of yourself from your heart, and you're open to whatever he wants to show you about him, that's, that's where you've got to get. And you need to begin to develop that. Doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter how long it is. I don't care if you do it in the morning or night. I don't know too many people who are successful during the day just because there's so much stuff going on, but maybe you've got a lot of discipline and you can do that. But you've got to do it, and you need to do it regularly. Whatever that looks. For me, it's six days a week. You Maybe you're seven, maybe you're four, whatever. Just create more space. Whatever you're doing now, look to push a little bit and to create more space. And then realize that you're going to have to build your life around it. If I get up at five, I can't go to bed at one. I can't run on four hours. I've got to, I've got to go to bed earlier. For some of you, if you're going to get up earlier, well, that's what DVR is for. Just tape the show and watch it the next day. Some of you are going to stay up later. That means you've got to turn off the TV and go and break away. Real quick, one of the best things you can do. Prayer is awesome. will change your life a lot. This will change your life a little bit. It's called a micro nap. Two to five minute nap. Learn how to use them. I do it three days a week. I get tired. I turn my chair around. Take a little nap. Once my head snaps, I know it's time for me to wake up. Always within two to three minutes. It works, I'm telling you. If I'm going to get up at five... I'm probably going to have to take a nap, about 2. So don't call me at 2, because I'm not going to call you back until 2.05. <laughs> figure it out. You need to figure all that kind of stuff out. What works for you? you got to plan. You build your life around this. You create. So if you're waking up earlier, figure it out. Start drink coffee. Set your coffee pot to turn on or whatever. You, you get it. It's not a super spiritual thing that, oh, God's going to wake me up and he's going to give me. No. That's why you have an alarm clock. You're still a person. You've got to work all this stuff into your life. Create more space. Second thing, take a risk. 1 Samuel 17, you know the story, David and Goliath. We don't have time to go all the way through it. So David's a kid. He's 17, 18 years old, this little runt of his family. The, his older brothers are fighting in Israel's army. They're fighting against the Philistines. Oftentimes, sometimes, during warfare, what these guys would do, because it was so brutal for armies to fight. I mean, you just decimated the male population of your, even if you won, I mean, your country, the population of your, the males of your country is decimated, which would ultimately ruin the population of your entire nation. So what they would do is they'd pick champions. You can see this in chapter 17, verse 9. A champion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to represent my team and you represent your team and whoever wins 
Well, we're going to say their team won. So Goliath is a champion of the Philistines, nine feet tall. He's a massive guy. Forty days straight, he comes out and he challenges Israel. Who's going to fight me? Who's going to fight me? Who's going to? Come on. Nobody will do it. David happens to be around the battle lines one day. He's taking food to his brothers, and he overhears and says, Why? What's happening? Nobody, how are y'all letting him defy the Lord that way? Somebody's got to do something. Nobody's going to do anything. The guy's nine feet tall. David says, I'll do it. Somehow, I don't know if this is desperation from Saul or faith or what it is, but for some reason, Saul lets David fight, which is a huge risk. It's not just David risking his own life. The terms Goliath says, sets out in verse 9 are, if I win, all of y'all, your whole nation is subject to us. If y'all win, your guy wins, then we'll be subject to you. He's got the whole nation on his back. It's not just about massive risk. And you know the story, David wins. Hits him in the forehead with a rock, cuts his head off. Yay, Israel, they win. For us, there's got to be some point, I would say regularly, where you intentionally take a risk. Risk is the gap between what you're certain of and what you intend to do. There's a gap there. This is what I'm certain I can do. This is what I intend to do. This gap is risk. James, in, James 2 says, faith without works is dead. Risk is evidence of faith. It's evidence of trust. If you're not actually stepping out in trust, it doesn't do any good to say that you trust because you don't. There's always risk involved. And it's relative. It's not, we don't need to go around comparing risk quotients with each other. That's not the point. What's a risk for you might not be a risk for me and vice versa. For some of you leading a small group, there's a, there's a risk there. You're certain you can have a conversation with one person. You're intending to lead a group with six or seven. There's a gap there, and that gap is risk. For some of you, leading a small group is no risk at all. You know you can do it. Easy for you. doesn't mean one person is better than another or more mature or stronger. It just means you have different. For some of you, talking to your parents about your faith, that's a huge risk. For others of you, none, none at all. Again, it doesn't say anything about your maturity level. It's just we all tolerate different levels of risk, and different things to us create that gap. There are certain things I'm certain of, and then what I intend to do, that gap is risk. And if the only things I ever do are things I'm certain of, there is no risk and there is no faith. There's no gap for God to fill because I can handle it all on my own, and this is where most of us live most of our life. Part of it is we live in a developed country where convenience and comfort are churned out. Part of it's just we're, we can be kind of sissies. Part of it is we just get busy living life that we don't intentionally put ourselves in a position where God has to come through. Some of you can't remember the last time you actually had to have faith for something. That if God didn't show up, if God didn't come through, if God didn't do something, you were toast. You can't remember the last time that happened because you've been living over here on what you're certain of for so long. That's not to beat you up. It's just to say, that's the point. We have to intentionally, for where we live, we have to intentionally take risks. I'm not saying be reckless. I'm just saying take a step beyond what you're certain you can do. And that step, that creates a gap where God has to work. That gives him access to your heart. It allows him to change your heart because in that step, you're saying, I'm not dependent upon myself, I'm dependent upon you, even if it's just for a step. It might be a baby step, but it works if you're moving in the right direction. You don't need to be reckless. 
my encouragement to you. We talk all the time about our deals. Ephesians 2.10, God's created good works in advance for all of us to do. You've got, there's stuff God wants you to do. You have a, there's a deal for your life. And my encouragement to you would be to take an intentional risk towards that. Almost every one of you know what your deal is. What, you, what you're not doing is integrating it into your life on a regular basis. So take a step in that direction beyond what you're certain you can do and see what happens when God fills in the gap. Third thing, from 2 Samuel 15. So David has multiple children by multiple wives. His third son is named Absalom. You can read about the story in 2 Samuel 13 to 18. I don't know if Absalom started off as a bad guy, but by the time it, 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 he goes south pretty fast. He had, there's an awful situation with his sister and David's firstborn son, and David, David handed, handled it just wretchedly. And it, apparently at that point it looks like Absalom just starts seething towards his dad. I mean, for years, just undealt with resentment and bitterness, and it's, he just seethes toward him. And so we pick up in chapter 15, Absalom is this, I mean, he's a stud. I mean, he's attractive, and he's popular, and he's well-spoken, and he's got this little group of about 50 men who are kind of attending to him. He's got chariots. Nobody has chariots, and he's got a chariot. And he kind of hangs out on the city road. The city gate is where legal matters are concerned, and he's kind of catching people as they come to the city gate, and, you know, they're telling them their problems, and he's kind of doing the political campaign thing, making promises, you know, well, if I was the king, I'd be taking care of it, and, oh, that's so bad for you, and too bad there's nobody to listen to your problems, and they want to bow, and he says, oh, don't bow to me, I'm just like you, and he's ingratiating himself to the people. And then uh, at some point he goes to Hebron, which is his hometown. He knows he's got support there. He brings his chariot and his guys, and, and he launches a coup. And so from Hebron, the word goes out, Absalom's king. Absalom's the king. So the word gets to Jerusalem, and David and his advisors tell him, and David says, all right, we're done. He walks out. Takes his family. He walks out of Jerusalem. He's the king. This is his snot-nosed kid leading a rebellion. He walks out. This is verse 25. The king says to Zadok, that's a priest, take the ark of God back into the city. They're bringing the ark out. And David says, no, it doesn't go with us. It stays here. It stays in Jerusalem. It stays with the, the people. It doesn't come with me. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He'll bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do with me whatever seems good to him. This is big boy stuff. David made a choice against himself. He chose against his own self-interest. At some point, every one of you are going to have that opportunity. In the next month or so, only a handful of you will. Ultimately, every one of you are going to have a chance at some point to choose against your own self-interest, which is exactly what David did. It would not have been unrighteous for him to stay and fight. He's the king, and God hadn't removed him. Absalom was leading a rebellion. And if anybody knew the position Absalom was in, it was David. He'd spent 10 years running from Saul, who was a wicked king who was trying to kill him, and David wouldn't touch him. He understood what it meant to submit to authority. And he turned around and walked away. He took his hands off the steering wheel and said, I'm, it's God's throne. He can put whoever he wants on it. 
If it's me, he'll bring me back. If it's not me, then I'm done. Then Absalom can have it. He chose against himself. This wasn't something, this wasn't a neutral for him. He didn't make a choice that, what, that didn't bring value to him. He made a choice that actually cost him. We can flip over three pages and see that he gets back. And he becomes, it's just a, doesn't seem very long at all. I'm not sure exactly the time frame, but a pretty quick turnaround. David's back. David didn't know that was going to happen. When he walked out, he did not know if he was coming back. He chose against himself. When you do that, that's, you're this wide for God to work in your life. What you're saying at that point is, it's your agenda, it's your glory, not mine. And to show you, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. That's how much I believe. You're the one who's in charge. You're the one who's in control. It's your will here and not mine. I'm choosing against what makes sense for me to do. I'm actually hurting myself, costing myself, by walking out of Jerusalem. Again, that's, that's kind of big boy stuff. And at some point, all of you are going to be faced with those choices. And my encouragement to you is when the opportunity comes, take it. You'll create more space in your life for the Lord to work. And really, just about any other single decision that you can make. There's very few things, that, and you can't manufacture these opportunities. Don't. You're, you'll, actually, you'll, you'll kill yourself. Don't. You can't manufacture these opportunities. David didn't go looking for this. It presented itself because of the sin of his sons. Doesn't mean that it's always going to be a sinful situation that brings it up. But it will, it will find you at some point. I do believe there's some of you that even in the next month, just a handful, but even this month, you're going to have a choice. And if you'll if you choose against yourself, against your own self-interest, it'll open you up for the Lord to work in a way that you've maybe never experienced. Because it'll be maybe for the first time you'll actually have to take your hands off the steering wheel in a way that could cost you. And you'll see what happens when you do. Let's pray. Actually, let's not. Let's take communion. It will be hard for you to take communion if your eyes are closed. We'll pray in a second. If you're helping with communion, if y'all come forward. All right, this was awkward at the first service, so I'm assuming it's going to be awkward now too. So I'm going to go ahead and let you know this passing out is going to be awkward. We don't normally take communion this way, but we've got these plates with crackers. So we want crackers first. Let's go ahead and grab them and pass them out. Grab a cracker and hold on to it. Pass them down the road. Perfect. Go ahead. And then we've got these trays that weigh kind of a lot with little glasses of juice. So those are going to come by. I want you to grab a glass of juice and hold on to it too and pass the tray. Again, the trays are kind of heavy, so just be ready for that. So hold on to those things, and then we'll take all of it together in a minute. I was thinking about communion. One thing communion does, I think, is it, it kind of a symbol or it physically demonstrates that there is a possibility that we can have a new heart. And that's what we need with all of this. That was the, the point of, if you'll do the things that we talked about, if you'll give God more space, if you'll intentionally take risks, and when the opportunity presents itself, if you'll choose against yourself, all of those things are, are, op- those are ways of opening yourself up to the Lord. If you'll do those things in faith, He can change your heart. And communion reminds us that we can actually have a new heart, not just smoke and mirrors. 
Jesus died and rose again. And in doing that, he said, we can make a trade. Your dead heart for a new live heart of flesh. And so what I want us to do as we pray, this, if you haven't got this stuff, keep your eyes open. Um, if you have, you can go ahead and close them and we're going to pray. And the thing I want you to think about, is there an area of your life where you're living out of your old self? Could be the whole deal if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. If that's the case, we'd love for you to do that this morning. Some of you who are already Christians, maybe it's just one area of your life where you're kind of trying to make it happen in your own strength, in your own effort. might be something you're embarrassed about, and so that's why you're trying to fix it on your own. It might just be something that you've always struggled with and you don't, maybe just have never thought, hey, I, can, I don't have to keep struggling with this. There's some area of your heart where you're, maybe it's still hard, you're operating out of your old self. The Lord brings something to your mind, just confess it to him in your, in your heart. You don't have to say anything out loud. Just confess that that's what you're doing. First John says that if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you just made a confession in God's eye, you're forgiven. He's wiped the slate clean. You don't need to wrestle and weep over those things anymore. You're forgiven. And communion is a tangible reminder of the forgiveness that's offered to us in Jesus. So take now the body of Christ that was broken for you. And take now the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. God, my prayer for all of us that we wouldn't keep doing the same things in the same way, expecting different results. But Lord, that you would give us a new heart. The, the, the places in our life where we continue to struggle, where we're living out of our old self, God, would you set us free to live out of the resources of heaven? God, I pray especially for those who in the next coming days and weeks and particularly in this month, will have an opportunity to choose against themselves. Lord, I pray for courage in those situations, that they would have a, just a strong sense of your leading to know what choice to make, even if it looks absolutely silly, like walking out of Jerusalem when you're the king, that they would know, they would just sense you're leading them, and they would know it's the way they got to walk. And God, I pray that you would come through big time. Maybe that means they get to come back and be the king again, maybe not but that they would make that step in faith, God, for the rest of us. Lord, I pray we would commit to more space for you to work. God, show us where do we need to be taking steps of faith? Where do we need to be risking? Where are we playing it too safe? God, in all of these things, the point is to give you more access to our hearts, which, God, we, we want, like David, we want you to say about us, that guy, that girl, She's a person after my heart. He's a person after my own heart. That's what we want you to say about us. And we can't do that on our own. So we ask you to do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We're going to close with worship.